and welcome to the Beer Vana podcast. Uh, we join you almost live from the cozy studios of X-Ray FM here in the Falcon Arts building in beautiful North Portland. Hi, Jeff. Hey, Patrick. How you doing? I'm doing pretty good. Yeah, I like uh, I like the the studio. I like the new intro. Man, thanks for looking up for the Beer Vana podcast. That's right. Uh, I should mention that with me is Jeff Allworth, author of several books, including the Beer Bible. We're not leaving, leading with the Widmer Way anymore. And the Widmer Way. You always gave me such crap. I thought, all right, I'll, make, I'll mix it up. <laughs> uh, and with me is Patrick Emerson, professor of economics at Oregon State University. Uh, and across from us is our producer, Will. Hi, Will Romy. He's waving. We're, We're all waving. waving. <laughs> you can see that clearly on the podcast, right? <laughs> so how are you doing? I'm doing pretty good. You've been traveling? Yeah, I've been traveling, and uh, that's been interesting. And then I've, I did two brewery tours the last two days. So um, I'm a little... I've had a lot of beer. <laughs> well, you're going to have more today. Yeah. I, I was glad to see that you had a giant cooler full of beer. So <laughs> that'll, that'll, that'll wake me right up. I do. We have to make a, a small dent in that. Well, summer is coming to uh, Portland, Oregon. Uh, summer is coming to the rest of the Nor- Northern Hemisphere. It is. And that means beer festival season. Ah, I see where you're going with this. Yeah. So instead of talking about the weather, I can even sort of quickly... Get right to the point, which is what we're going to be talking about in the podcast today. But before we do, I wanted to um, mention that you uh, will be engaging in a um, uh, global tour in the fall, winter, probably into spring uh, (laughs) to start doing research for the next edition of the Beer Bible. Yeah, that's right. And actually... We should. I should crowdsource something to hive mind here. Um, I'm definitely going to go to Belgium, Britain, and Berlin. The three Bs. Uh, <laughs> the three Bs of the brewing world. <laughs> yeah, these are places that have changed a fair amount since I was there, and 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 I haven't seen that change. So I need to check those places out. Uh, I threw out to online hive mind uh, this question, which was, where else should I go, particularly in Europe, that that has mm. something going on that's kind of obscure but cool. The last time I did this, um, the the brewers of Belgium said, you got to go to Italy. They're really doing some fascinating stuff there. And he was right. Mm-hmm. Uh, not only m- – most most places now have a, a burgeoning craft beer scene. Yeah. But a lot of them are just making standard, you know, American-style craft beer. Right. Uh, but uh, Italy is really doing its own thing. And so it was interesting to go there and see this kind of new tradition being born. Right. So if you know of any place – Birvana podcast listeners, where that's happening, um, I was hit, tipped to the idea of going to Vilnius, Lithuania. Yeah, I, I think I'm definitely Vilnius. putting that on the list. So that's pretty cool. But you know, Bucharest, Riga, Latvia, uh, maybe Riga, <laughs> maybe Tallinn. <laughs> I have no idea, but I just like the idea of going to Riga. I want to go to Riga. My mother went to Riga a couple years ago. Yeah. Loved it. Really? There you go. Yeah. Apparently, uh, Vilnius, according to Wikipedia uh-huh. and my incredibly brief purviewing, what's what you know, looking at looking around at what's going on is a beautiful little town that was never bombed and is quite attractive, and so I'm looking forward to that. Do so, I, uh, you know, I, for a while the Scandinavians were getting a lot of juice with Mikeller and uh, Evil Twin and stuff. No, Evil Twin's here, right? I yeah, can, I can't. Yeah, keep yeah he's 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 Michael's uh, brother, Evil Twin. Yeah, Evil he's Twin, in, yeah. He's but in, but uh, he set up, he set up in New York, right? Uh, but they were getting some some juice. Uh, what's that one? Nogon O. Sure. Whatever. Yeah. How are you pronounce it? I don't know. There was a lot of weird letters there that we don't have. Yeah. Yeah. So no. It'd be, uh, it'd be interesting to know if there's still stuff going on there. Scandinavia is is rocking. I mean, Copenhagen is often uh, identified as one of the leaders there, and I, I didn't really find a lot that was 
totally unique uh, right. to Scandinavia. They're they're really trying to get something going called uh, the, the Lutefisk Lager. <laughs> they can just keep keep that going on their own. No, uh, New Nordic b- Brewing, yeah. which is uh, following New Nordic food, but it was really just a concept and not actually an organic thing, and it uh-huh. didn't, didn't seem to be going anywhere yet. So, All I don't right. know. Um, you know, uh, there there are remnants of old traditions, like in Poland, where they made uh, Grodzicki, and so. If you know of places, uh, give me a holler. All right. So, uh, as I mentioned, summertime is here. It's actually kind of a mixed day today in Portland. Down here in the basement, we get a faint glow of the light outside. Uh, but the weather's warming. Beer festival season is coming, or has arrived, I guess. <laughs> what is the point? Uh, and longtime listeners of the podcast uh, will recall that each summer we do an episode about the Oregon Brewers Festival, which is one of the oldest and biggest Uh, festivals in the land. We use that as an opportunity to consider the pulse of brewing through the lens of one of the country's largest oldest festivals. Oops, I stepped on your your script. I'm I'm a pretty good writer, man. You just follow (laughs) follow that script. Yeah, stop stop going (laughs) off script. Uh, The classic, the classic screenwriter's lament. Yes, it's true. (laughs) In today's episode, we're going to consider the question of the festival itself. This past weekend, Jeff was in Paso Robles, California to attend the Firestone Walker Invitational, one of the country's premier fests. He recorded short interviews with six brewers in attendance and explored the evolving nature of the beer festival with them. We'll have those interviews and more. Is that good? Did I do a good job? You read that brilliantly. Yeah. (laughs) Once we reined you back in. Uh, but first, of course, we have to do the news. It seems like the weekly roundup must include one item about trade and protectionism. So today we'll consider the 5% tariffs that President uh, Trump has threatened to place on all imports coming from Mexico. Uh, a number that could rise as high as 25%, he says. Those tariffs could dent the strength of imported beer, which last uh, imported Mexican beer, uh, which last year grew at 8.6%, and accounted for 25 million barrels of U.S. sales. So, uh, oh, it grew 8.6%. Yeah, imports uh, are doing great, and they're led by Mexican imports. So. Uh, 25 million barrels of U.S. sales were in Mexican beer or imports total? Uh, Mexican beer. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, so that could hurt. That could, yeah, I mean, I, we'll, by the time this podcast airs, the deadline for uh, uh, Trump's own deadline for saying that he would impose them right. will have passed, so we'll know if he actually did it. So you might hear this and, and, and nothing happened, and it was a bluff, but uh, there may also, by the time you hear it, be a 5% uh, tariff. Yeah. And there's growing dissent within the Republican ranks about this, but yeah. Yeah, uh, I'm not a big fan of tariffs. I think we've covered this before. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, uh, he, what he threatened was 5% going up, increasing over time, and it could it could actually substantially dent uh, uh, Mexican beer imports. Maybe Absolutely. not at 5%, but about higher. That could really, um, you know, affect, it could, it could literally affect the beer market in the United States. Yeah, this well, happens, so. this is an area, is less, uh, I think that where you did your research, you'd probably find that craft beer consumers are less price sensitive. Uh, to use a term of art, there's right. less elasticity of demand. Uh-huh. Uh, but among these macro loggers, I think consumers are probably extremely price sensitive. And so if the price of a six pack of Modelo goes up even, you know, a dollar, so what, like 20% or 10%, uh, that could have a, a big impact on sales, on U.S. sales. And it will be interesting to know also what percentage of total sales of uh, 
something like Modelo is accounted for in, by the U.S. market relative to the Mexican market. Yeah. I would imagine that for Modelo, maybe not super huge, but for someone like Corona, I think it's humongous. Hmm. Uh, so, so can I um, can I insert something completely off topic? Yes. Uh, so I, I mentioned earlier that I've been rewatching The Wire. <laughs> yes. And there's a scene in which Stringer Bell, uh, one of the gangsters, is going to community college, and he's learning about economics. Right. And uh, the scene they show is he's learning learning all about elasticity of demand. That's right. I remember, I remember <laughs> and, this. And he was talking it's about been years, how but I remember this. The drug market is an inelastic market. Yes. That was his point. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, people are gonna want a drug no matter what. That's right. Uh, yeah. Okay. We could get into a long digression on <laughs> economics if you like. No, but I just, I just. I, I was looking at you and I was singing, singing Stringer Bell and I thought, oh, it's all coming together in my mind. Yeah, we, we'll, we'll, we'll expand on this in our other podcast, uh, talking about economics while drinking beer. <laughs> That's kind of what this podcast is. <laughs> that would is. be actually, that would be a pretty awesome podcast. We got to get Van Havig in here. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> get you guys going. I think that would be awesome. Just drink a lot of beer and then talk about economics drunk. Okay, while we're talking about dents in the market, the Brewers Association released findings that for the third consecutive year, it least half of the top 50 regional craft brewing companies didn't grow. So these are the biggest, half of the biggest uh, regional craft brewing companies didn't grow. In fact, 28 either stayed flat or declined. Similarly, AB InBev's portfolio of craft brands saw mixed performance. Overall, they grew 1% as a group, but the largest brands, Goose Island and Shock Top, dropped 7% and 23% respectively. So this uh, high-end strategy that They've poured so much money into to find high growth is sputtering a bit. Sputtering, yeah. I'm sure that they did not. I mean, one percent is better than than being in decline, which a lot of the bigger brands are, uh, bigger craft brands. But it's also probably not what AB wanted. Yeah. And speaking of Modelo, isn't it Constellation Brands that? No, that's different. Anyway. <laughs> yeah, I think Constellation I, Brands is involved with. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Um, yeah. A Mexican uh, brand. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But uh, <laughs> but. But they're involved with uh, Ballast Point, right? Yeah. And uh, I was just reading about the the hemorrhaging of Ballast Point, which is pretty sad. It lost like 100,000 barrels or something crazy. It was yes, just exactly. really collapsing. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, as a percentage, it's, it's gone down dramatically and they're shedding staff. And uh, apparently they don't have any more independent like Ballast Point specific marketing and and uh, distribution staff or something. So, uh, what a yeah. disaster! Ouch. Yeah. So there's two. So two parts of the story. One is that these big regionals are sputtering. The second is that this big, big, big brewery strategy of buying up little and regionals and trying to make them big regionals is not going well. Um, <clears throat> but what's booming are the little artisanal guys. Yeah, the little tiny guys. Yeah, they're the ones. Uh, which is definitely it, it's interesting how uh, you know every couple of years we have to completely reset conventional wisdom about what what the market is looking like and what you should be doing and all these things. So mm-hmm. we're, I think, resetting that expectation right now as we've watched these numbers come in. Yeah. Okay. So let's turn to uh, our topic today, which is the, the evolving nature of the Beer Fest. Yeah. So we can go back a number of years ago when the Oregon Brewers Fest were started and then sort of as craft beer grew, the festival grew, and uh, to what it is today, which is essentially... Oh gosh, what a hundred different breweries or something with tons of different beers all lined up in this big sort of beer garden kind of festival, and it's big and loud and crowded and dusty, and um, kind of a smorgasbord. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 
and uh, we're starting to see something different come along and in mass. <laughs> right. Uh, so you want to talk to us about uh, the Firestone Market Invitational, what it is and how you ended up there? Yeah. So um, it's a, you know, in, in Oregon, we have this kind of set model of how you conduct a, a beer festival, which was based on the OBF. Mm-hmm. And there are many other models and Firestone's is very different. So it's called an invitational because Matt Brindleson, the brewer there, just decides who he wants to invite and he invites them. There's no application process. There's no, you know, none of that. You just, you get the invite and you go and you may get an invite one time and not the next time or you might be there a number of years in a row. And just to be clear, he invites the breweries and brewers, but not, but he doesn't specify the beer. That's correct. He does not specify the beers, right. so you're uh, you have to bring at least two beers, and I think you can bring. Uh, it seems like most most of them had four on tap, uh, and then some were pouring from bottles that they had and, and other stuff. So you can have you can bring you know more beer if you want. Yeah, which is nice because a place like the Oregon Brewers Festival Festival is a smorgasbord, but essentially it's one brewery, one beer. That's right. Yeah. The interesting thing from the consumer perspective is you go you pay. I think it's a hundred dollars. Mm-hmm. Um, you pay you pay a flat fee. All, you're given a glass and a plate, and there are restaurant kiosks around, and there are fifty the fifty breweries around, and you can just get whatever beer or food you want over the course of the five hours of the festival. And it's all included in the hundred dollar price. It's all included in the hundred dollar price. It's a limited time, five hours. Right, and it's which is which is a good amount of time. Right, um, it's yeah. not. Uh, some sometimes other fests limit it to two or three hours, and then you really do feel like you have to just hustle and mm-hmm. and get to everything you can quick. I know that sometimes those festivals are described as real uh, drunken fests. Right. Uh, that that short window actually creates more drunkenness. I didn't see a ton of drunkenness at Firestone Walker. Uh, I think because everyone was just leisurely enjoying themselves and food was readily available. Right. Available. This so. is this is uh, similar to the debate about uh, closing times in England when they were pushing back the closing times of the pubs. People said, oh, well, that just means that the people are just going to drink faster and be more drunk when you let them out. Huh. That's interesting. Yeah, I think that may happen. Um, so in, and in this case, it's uh, an extremely cool fest in that uh, the breweries who were invited actually pour the beer. So, you know, if it, it, it's either a brewer uh, or, or in many cases the owner. So it uh, gives you a chance to meet the person and talk to them about what they're serving. Yeah. Which is really cool, and they don't. It's not even always obvious who it is. There are just a few people back there, and you kind of have to ask around to find out. <laughs> if you don't know the brewery, you know it could just be a famous brewer hanging out there, and right. you don't know. So, uh, and, but that's cool. And is it um, is it over multiple days or just one day? It's over multiple days, but most of the brewers arrive uh, the night before and hang out. And there's this place uh, at the festival. The festival it's in this small town, th- uh, thirty thousand people. Mm-hmm. In wine country, in wine Central country, Cal- but but quite remote, like not close to anything. Yes. I, I flew into uh, San Jose, which is more than two hours away, and drove right. down. Fairly uh, close to San Luis Obispo. Yes, it's a maybe a forty-minute drive. People the, were saying so, yeah, uh, which is fairly close, but you know, not not it's not central to anything. <laughs> so the little town. Um, has a character of being feeling a little bit remote, and they have yeah. this huge, these huge grounds uh, that you would not see in a town of uh, most mo- in most towns of thirty thousand people, where they have events and stuff. Right. So the, the festival is held in this really beautiful, mature, kind of park-like space with all these big trees around, and so it's it's wonderful space. I mean, I think yeah. that's a big part of the the charm of it that is, you know, just fortunate that they happen to have that right there in the town. Right, right. While you were there. You had a chance to talk to quite a few uh, of the 
invitees. I did. Uh, and uh, what we're going to do today is uh, play some little short interviews you did with a select group of, of invitees that represent breweries from across the U.S. and across the world. That's true. <laughs> which is which is another thing. They actually have international brewers there, yeah. which is also really cool. Yeah. And some of the topics that you're going to explore that are really fascinating to me are sort of what what kinds of beers they chose, how they ended up at the fest, why they come to a fest, especially breweries that don't sell locally. So why do they why go to a, a California beer fest? So these are all uh, interesting questions that we'll um, that we'll uh, hear hear you ask, and then we can discuss after afterward. Cool. So do we want to get to the first pair? Oh, I should say one thing about yep. it is uh, there were breweries from all over the place. So I did. I actually tried to get a representative sample of breweries from. Uh, the United States, so I got ones from the West Coast, the Middle, and the East Coast, and I got a couple from Europe. So I was really trying to go for Yeah, uh, you did a really nice job getting a, getting a, a cross-section. Oh, and I should also say that um, for, for people who go, and people who go to this fest, uh, this fest sells out instantly, and they come from all over the place. So when I was in the airport <laughs> leaving, I saw a bunch of people who were clearly uh, fest-goers. Part of the reason is because it's kind of a who's who of of great breweries you know you've right. got you've got uh, uh i should ask how many breweries roughly in total were there 50 50 and yeah. then and then uh how big is it how many people how many tickets do they sell per day it's R- yeah roughly. it's just it's just the one day so it's, it's oh sorry yeah the one day yeah it's um i think it's like 2500 or something but it's the, the grounds are big so it's not crowded it doesn't feel too crowded or yeah. too crazy not but it's all. but i mean it's it's a significant size yeah it's a significant size yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, so we're going to start in the U.S., and we're going to start by heading east. For those who live in, in Oregon, it actually, the physical terrain feels a little bit like the Oregon Brewers Festival. You know, I mean, it's about that much space, maybe. Right. So, anyway. Right. Some yeah. big trees. And, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, I've been to Paso Robles, and it's really beautiful country. Uh, uh, really good wine. My first time. Excellent wine down there. Yeah, I uh, uh, had an opportunity to work at Cal Poly's. San Luis Obispo. Uh-huh. So they flew me out, showed me around, took me to Paso Robles, took me to Pismo Beach. No, what's the name of the the beach nearby? Anyway, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> anyway, so well, my point is that it's a beautiful central California coast, uh, hilly rolling terrain. Really, yeah. Really, really nice. Yep, yep. All right, so we're going to head east. We're going to start by uh, talking to, uh, well, we're going to start by listening to you interview Matt Gallagher of Half Acre Brewing in Chicago, Illinois. Cool. And then after that, we'll talk, we'll listen to you talking to Doug Reeser from Burial Brewing in Asheville, North Carolina. So I know, a place we want to go someday. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Whoever we have a sponsor, if you sponsor us and you're from Asheville, we'll come. That's right. Hey, Burial, <laughs> we have an idea for you. Uh, all right, so why don't we listen to the uh, uh, the interviews, and then uh, we'll uh, come back and we'll taste some of the beer. Yeah. All good, right. That that was good sleuthing for you. So yeah, that'll be fun. All right, we'll be back soon. Okay. Uh, yeah, Matt Gallagher from Half Acre Beer Company in Chicago. All right. Is this your first time at the festival? Uh, no, I think this is our I think it's our fourth year coming out. Okay. Uh, is how many festivals do you do in a year? Is this uh, uh, one that you do it's like do you do a lot of festivals or how? yeah we do a lot of festivals for sure uh, but this one is um, it's uh, it's a mandatory stop for me personally and why is that uh, it's just a fun one yeah it's uh, just you know Firestone Walker is a wonderful company uh, they treat everyone very well 
and uh, it's a great place to come because everybody, all the other brewers want to come to this too. So it's a great opportunity to catch up with uh, friends that you may not see all, you know, all year, all year long. So one thing that uh, I think a lot of people who drink beer don't aren't aren't aware of or aren't aware how it works is the kind of friendship community that exists between brewers. What what do you what does that secret cabal do? Like when you guys get together and uh, what do you talk about and why are you all friends? I don't know that that's the case in other industries. Yeah, it's it's a special industry with with respect to this. Um, it's um, for better or worse, it's a it's a like-minded set of you know you know a lot of a lot of like-minded people who. Um, you know, go down rabbit holes in different areas, and what's really fun is, you know, hanging out, making, becoming good friends with folks who brew very different styles of beer, uh, and then that crossover of like, you know, hearing what someone else is doing in a way different part of the industry, and then applying that back to something that we do, uh, and it just kind of, you know, it lifts everybody up. Uh, a lot of information sharing, a lot of technique sharing. Uh, and just a lot of inspiration from what other people are doing. Yeah, it seems like uh, there are ways that brewers talk to each other that they don't get to talk to customers. There's a level of depth and kind of, um, it has to do with what you do for a living and not just the beer, and there's other things going on there. Oh yeah, for sure. Uh, brewers are gonna tend to nerd out on the more obscure details of, uh, of the day-to-day -day, uh, processing stuff. Yeah. Um, and it's pretty funny just because that's really what everybody wants to zero in on is like the, the you know some really odd obscure thing that someone else is doing and then you got to be like wait a minute how are you doing this why are you doing this like how did you even come up with that and typically it's like well it was a mistake but it turned out great and we learned from it and now this cool thing came out of it and why do so in other industries where non-disclosure agreements are a huge deal and you know proprietary processes yeah, and ingredients yeah. are a huge deal why do you guys just tell each other i think that would that's a thing that mystifies a lot of drinkers. Uh, that's a good question. That maybe I, I don't really have the answer to that. Uh, but you know, this industry was going long before we, you know, became involved in it. The precedent had been set that, you know, you don't be an asshole. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's true. And, uh, thankfully, that's for the most part it's still alive and well. So, what are you guys pouring here today? And uh, what what's what's popular with the people who are coming up to your booth? Uh, we brought our, our year-round Pilsner, uh, Pony Pilsner, so we're pouring that today. Uh, and it's actually been, been fairly popular today, and there's a lot of awesome Pilsners today. I think uh, this year is maybe the year of the Pils here at the Fest. There's a lot of real standout, just awesome Pilsners. Uh, so the Pils has been fun. And then we've got some of the bigger beers. We've got a big double IPA with some newer hops. Um, we've got a, a, a barrel-aged stout that we aged in bourbon barrels uh, and then in uh, apple brandy barrels. Uh, so that's been a fun one. Uh, and then we have a, a fruited mixed fermentation beer as well. Uh, that's been it. We, we bottled it in clear glass and that's been, um, uh, we've been getting some questions about that. Yeah, so are there hops in it? Uh, the, there's, the hopping rate is very low. So you're not having a light struck problem? No, no, not having a light struck problem. That said, I personally enjoy the skunky hot flavor. Uh, so Corona, oh, some old Corona, oh, I love it. <laughs> we actually just did a podcast where we blind tasted some uh, Mexican lagers, and boy, did Corona stand out. It was definitely uh, yeah. light struck. So. Yeah, it's, uh, it's part of the beer for sure. Yeah, I like it. 
So uh, what are what are people enjoying here, and do they drink different stuff here in California than they drink in Chicago? Uh, what's uh, what's what are you noticing here? Uh, that's a good question. I can't. Um, I don't think they are anymore. I think maybe a few years ago when we came out, um, things may have been a little bit different. But I think really across the country, you know, with the rise of social media and just the amount of information sharing and the speed of information sharing. It's really tended to sort of homogenize the whole industry, uh, for better or worse. In that, uh, there's still pockets of you know, you know, hoppy beers in the Pacific Northwest. They're going to be a little bit different from hoppy beers in Southern California. So there's still some subtle nuances to geography, but I think the overall trends are fairly consistent across the country. Let's talk before we lose you entirely about uh, Chicago, which was until 10 years ago, a terrible beer city for such yeah. a big beer city. And now it is arguably maybe the best beer city in America. I mean, it's really stepped up its game. So yeah. what what happened to Chicago and what's what's going on there now? Yeah, I should have a better answer for you because we've, we've seen it. Uh, yeah, we've been around for, I guess, 10, 12 years now. Uh, so we've seen this explosion when we, you know, I moved to Chicago in 2003 and there, was, there wasn't a lot going on in the beer world. Every bar had the same six to eight beers on trap. Um, and now it's insane. It's completely insane. And uh, I think it's just a large metropolitan area that uh, caught the beer bug. And it's a good industrial city. It's, um, depending which way you look at it, it's easy and it's really hard to operate a brewery in Chicago. Um, but just the amount, the amount of people that were there relative to the number of breweries, which is so out of whack that it's now finally just kind of balanced out. And people now, whether you're in far western suburbs, far southern suburbs, downtown Chicago, you're going to be within walking distance or a short drive from a brewery. Yeah. So, uh, for better or worse, everyone has access to a brewery very close to them. <laughs> it's really good. It's 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 about time that Chicago caught up. I mean, it's a famous uh, brewing city from way yeah, back. Exactly. So. Exactly. Yeah. So uh, yeah, it it's been fun to see. Yeah. Fun to be a part of. All right. Well, thank you very much, and uh, cheers. Yeah. Cheers. And my name is Doug Reeser. I own Burial Beer Company in Asheville, North Carolina. And have you ever been to this festival before? I have not personally. This is actually our first year being invited. So I'm pretty excited. I've actually never been to Paso Robles at all. We, we did do Firestone Walker's hosting of Pills and Love last year down in Venice. That was a hell of a time, but first time up here. So I assume Burial does not make it out to California. Is that right? Uh, we do. We're good We're good friends. You know, oh, do you mean regularly? Yeah. No. No, no, no. <laughs> we, we have had the fortune to come out for several events. We did some events. Uh, we've done several events with Modern Times, pretty much their Festival of Funk and uh, Caffeination every year. We send beers out, we're good friends with those guys. And Firestone Walker for Pills and Love last year and done some collaborations with uh, Highland Park. So um, we're getting we're getting more familiar with it. This is definitely a haunt for us. When we lived in Seattle. The flight down to San Diego was a fun one to take, you know, eight, nine years ago when uh, craft beer was really taking off in Southern California. So we've, we've, we've traveled down here quite a bit. And how do you, did you, how do you get invited to this? Uh, it seems like some breweries have been here for years and years and years, and others, this is their first year. Do you know how that all, how the sausage gets made? I think you got to impress Brindleson, uh, it sounds like. I, <laughs> uh, I know that uh, we were at Pills and Love, we've been at Pills and Love for the last two years, and I think two years ago, he, uh, Matt, met uh, my partner, Tim Gormley, 
and Tim shared one of our pilsners with him. And I think, you know, I, th I think with any great brewery, you appreciate quality, you know, and yeah. you're looking for the best breweries. And I'm sure that I, I'm very humbled to to be asked to be here by them. I think it's a pretty great honor, and to be amongst the the brewery crowd this year, this year is is pretty pretty uh, amazing. And how, how many festivals do you do a year? Is this something you typically do a lot of? or We do way too many. Um, <laughs> we are doing two at this moment. Uh, I am here, and Tim and my wife Jess are at uh, Asheville's Beer City Fest. We, Asheville has one big beer festival every year, uh, Beer City, and it's the one that we tend to show up the biggest and boldest for, pouring magnums and pulling a bunch of really cool stuff out for time tappings. So I'm sad to be missing that, but we are at a festival pretty much every weekend. Okay. We, the festival environment has really changed, I think, over the last couple of years. We made a pretty stiff commitment about three years ago to only do brewer-run festivals. Brewer or um, brewer, I guess, uh, curated festivals, not independent festivals. And so uh, it's gotten to a point, though, it's hilarious, because I think when we made that decision, it was like, okay, there's these 20 breweries that have these festivals, and now it's... 200 breweries that have festivals that invite us to you know that we're invited to every year and so now we have to kind of pick and choose you know which ones we can budget the money to go out to and be a part of as a you know as a function of your marketing approach and selling beer and thinking about you know how to use festivals do you think about them all the same or differently it's like do you think about the one in Asheville right now differently than you thought about this one that's that's a great question I, we actually put a, a ton of thought into festivals um we used to just kind of be there for ourselves. You know, it's a, it's a realization that seven years ago I didn't even own a brewery, and the fact that I get invited to cool festivals now is just a personal thing. Yeah. I think over the last year we, we put a ton of effort into realizing the potential to create moments for customers, you know, and I think uh, any brewery worth their salt is trying to figure out how they can constantly uh, wow customers, show them the wide range of your beer which is really hard when you only have you know two to four taps or whatever but we, we talk about the four corners of our world which is um, hoppy beer uh, rustic lagers quaffable drinkable lagers uh, mixed culture and sour beer and big bold stouts and so we try to hit those four corners and we try to very methodically do it um, almost always at every festival have some alluring beers up front time tap some other beers that are more rare for later in the event but make sure that you pretty much have something that's going to wow virtually every type of customer and we feel like because we operate in those four corners we pretty much have that opportunity to do that and i think you asked the question though like does it differ where you are it absolutely does i mean i i think we know demographic wise that in Asheville they're more prone to drinking hoppy beer and so we're focusing more on hoppy beer we know that when we go to Miami, Florida, that they're more prone to big stouts. So we're going to pour big stouts. And if we go into some markets, it might be more of a sour focus or it might be a lager focus. So we're, we're certainly trying to play to the crowd. I mean, if you're not out here doing shit for your customers, then you should just stay home. It's, it's certainly about their experience, not yours. And what, so what, what beers do you have here today and which ones are getting tasted the most what 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 are people going for it's crazy i was up there pouring for three minutes and all there's only three beers on but all three of them are kind of getting equal pull so uh we always um as a as a rule always pour a, a lager it's really important to 
us. It's it's the most important style to us personally as a brewery, our entire staff and our ownership. Style, it's the it's the beer that I think everybody took their first step in. But it's also the beer that we want to drink sessionably with our friends and it's the one we want to share with brewers because it's really how you show other brewers that you know how the hell to make beer. So we always bring a pills. Uh, this is actually Blood Tusk, which is one we only make a couple times a year. It's a, a rustic Keller Pills kind of style. It's a shorter age beer. It's a young pills. No dry hop on this one. It's it's one of the only. It's probably the only pilsner we make that we don't dry hop. Um, using all American hops, no German nobles, but American grain with some German grain with all American hops. And it's something that we've been really trying to do with our lager program is very much Americanize them as much as we possibly can. We still are steeped in German German process and intention, but we're trying to utilize as much new world ingredients as possible. So that be Blood Tusk is here. I love that beer, it's one of my favorite. Uh, we also are pouring uh, two bigger, bolder beers. A beer we released yesterday called Ascent of the Blessed, which is a beer that's, man, 20 months in the making. Um, last year, we laid down a golden sour base in our fooder, one of our Brunello casks in our tap room. We aged it there for a couple months and put it in Chardonnay casks for about a year until our wine grapes arrived last fall. We did wine collaboration. We do wine selection like we do hop selection. Uh, every every year we go pick our hops and then we go down to last year we went down to Oregon and picked our grapes for the season this year we're going to uh, Healdsburg in California to pick our grapes um, last year we worked with Minimus wines and uh, picked some incredible grapes that I was really excited about we did some free ra uh, free run wine products that we actually have aging in barrels for our, our restaurant that we're opening but the residual wine and pumice uh, we use as a, a blending facility, I guess, to blend back that beer, allow it to re-ferment for a third time. And then we bottled this about six months ago, and so we have one of the first kegs. We released it yesterday. It's a really cool beer that drinks kind of like wine. It's probably 35 to 40% wine, actually, in content. It was spontaneously fermented wine blended with uh, mixed culture beer so it's not like we took mixed culture beer and re-fermented it on the grapes we actually fermented the grapes with their native culture and then blended the two together as a final product with a third fermentation cool beer with pinot uh, pinot gris and some viognier in it and then we also have realm of absolute nothingness which was the first stout we put out this year of our kind of like big stout program pretty much once a month i would say every four weeks we put out a big stout they are the most desired beers by our customer base. Um, they tend to go in the first couple minutes. Um, and so Realm was actually the first one. It's from February. It's really cool. We had, we had a couple kegs laying around, and we're like, man, let's send that out uh, out to Cali and, and uh, see how people respond to it. It's a 13.5% it's a uh, big stout, extremely sweet and thick, uh, eight-hour boil um, with coconut, cocoa nibs from an Asheville chocolate maker and vanilla uh, two different types of vanilla bean it's a crowd pleaser obviously so that's what we're starting with and we're gonna put on death and a miser which is another one of our eight like an 18 month old sour beer that aged on uh, three different types of Michigan cherries well that sounds like delicious beer that was a lot of talking no that's fine I think I have to go <laughs> try your up, yeah that's great I think I have to go try that uh, Pilsner so thank you so much for talking and yeah. good luck at the festival thank you so much brother Okay, so that was interesting. Uh, one of the things that stuck out to me was um, Matt 
uh, from Half Acre in Chicago was talking about how there's sort of a homogenization of beer trends and styles across the U.S. that they're kind of spreading now so that sort of some of the same trends you see everywhere, like I guess I suppose hazies have gone everywhere and now this right. sort of lagering Pilsner craze is everywhere, uh, which is interesting. I think that's I think that's that's right. That's one of the ways in which craft beer has matured now. Uh, I think that consumers. Uh, oh, you're okay. Yeah, I, I keep sh- talking. No, well, we gotta. Yeah, <laughs> we gotta explain what's going on here. So, uh, your intrepid beer buyer went and found some half acre uh, beer. Um, so, we're, as as we're talking about Matt's comments, we'll talk. We'll drink Matt's beer. Um, this is the uh, Daisy Cutter Pale Ale uh, from Half Acre Brewing. Uh, let's see. What do we know about? It's uh, it's a pale ale. It's five point two uh, ABV, and um, that's about all we know about it. It's uh, uh, there, there's kind a, of a deep golden color. Yeah, and there's a thing at the top that says Balmoral. Uh, I'm not sure how that relates to anything. Yeah, I'm not either. <laughs> okay, <laughs> uh, so we're gonna try a Matt's pale ale, but uh, it looks yeah. like honey. That's it looks quite a bit like honey. Yes, sure in, does. Including yeah. the clarity, which is not not bright, but um, kind of clear, clear, but yeah. You know, Honey clear. Yeah, it's 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 a a nice, a very pretty, very pretty beer. Mm. It really smells like a classic pale ale. So I I do have this sense that uh, beer trends spread more quickly now than they used to because of the spread of craft beer in general. Yeah. So that you know, as soon as something gets hot in the Northeast, then you know the Southwest is already working on versions and vice versa. So uh, I do think that there is something to that regionalization that is dying. Well, I don't want to say dying as, as a lament, but you see a lot of the same beers all over the U.S. Yeah, I think it, it, we used to see more more pockets uh, where they were isolated and there wasn't a lot of communication. Now, if something interesting is happening uh, in Chicago or in San Francisco or in uh, Boston, it goes national pretty fast. Yeah, and the other thing that he said, which I think is also interesting, is that, and I also think this is true, that more and more now craft breweries are starting up and where they, a lot of them used to specialize in certain beers. More and more now we're seeing craft breweries that are trying to uh, sort of hit most of the bases. Mm-hmm. Like they'll have a lagering program and they'll have the IPAs and the hoppy beers and they'll have maybe a souring, you know. So uh, I think that's more and more true. Um, and also I think in, in I, I, for a couple of reasons. One is that's because cust- customers are more sophisticated and looking for different ranges of beers. But I also think that the, uh, and I think this is underappreciated, the growth of brewing talent in the U.S. has uh, been exponential. All of these initial craft breweries have bred lots and lots of talented apprentices mm-hmm. who have now gone and started their own. And there's just a there's just an amazing amount of, to use the economics term, human capital in, in craft brewing now. That's right. <clears throat> so and that's a that's that's a great thing. And and but you're right. I think it's also a, a an information vector. Uh, and so it takes time to build up that capital, but now we have it. And that's why I think that there's, there's so many breweries now that are just brewing outstanding beers across a very wide range of styles. And you need to, you know, they're very different techniques. Yeah. Getting a great Pilsner and lagering it for five weeks is a lot different than doing a super hazy hoppy IPA. So, so I got to tell you, I'm really loving this, uh, daisy cutter here. Yeah. So this is kind of old school, isn't it? It's old school in the best possible way. It's It's, uh, tiny. It's, it's got, it's, it's piney floral. It seems like Mm -hmm. a cascade hopped, Mm -hmm. uh, 
uh, pale ale. Yep. You know, it's got that wonderful aroma, but um, but it actually has got a, a little bit of malt character. Yes. It's just really nice. Yeah. It's smooth and, and rounded. You, and, and you find this less and less these days. Yeah, you really do. The hops, they just feature hops so much to the, well, not, I guess what I would say is that because you, you, you focus so much on the hops, you kind of pay less attention to the malt back. And this one really, um, yeah. really puts the malt front and center. I think, uh, and I think it's intentional. You know, you mm-hmm. want to, you want, you, it's all about the hops. You want to peel everything else out of the way. But I, from, from my perspective, you lose some sessionability that way. Uh, yes. You get a little malt character in there, a little roundness and sweetness. And um, I find myself taking larger mouthfuls, you know. Yeah, that's actually like, an interesting point. So let's explore that for a second because there's something about having that malt back that kind of sustains the palate almost. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Like if it's too hop forward, even if it's not super bitter, it, your your tongue kind of gets a little numb after a while. I feel. Yeah, it it, it it's there's something about it that sl- definitely slows me down. Even if it's a session IPA, four point seven percent. If it's just very top heavy on hops, it's uh, and, and in fact that's why I like uh, pale ales more than session IPAs. If I see them on a menu, because mm-hmm. I'll I just the sessionability in a pale ale is so nice. And this is an extremely well done one. I would drink this beer routinely if I lived in Chicago. Yeah. A simple pale ale. I do think that's a lot of Cascade hops. That's nice. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So that's uh, that's good. What else about uh, Matt and Doug? Oh, we haven't talked about Doug yet. So Doug comes from Asheville, North Carolina. Yeah. Uh, He did mention some connection to Seattle. Yeah. uh, Which he didn't explore, but apparently that's where he started or? Yeah. I didn't explore it because um, I was cognizant of the time and I, I, I recognized that if I started going down holes like that, rabbit holes like that, we might be. Talking about Seattle instead of his brewery. So. so they do tons of festivals, and it becomes very clear when you listen to him talking that this is a major uh, part of their marketing. It's a it's a huge outreach for a small brewery to get their name out there to go to these festivals. But he talks about how now they've really taken a conscious decision to go only or to focus on brewer run or brewer brewer curated festivals, and this is kind of the trend that we're sort of highlighting in this. Right. podcast so uh more and more we're seeing these types of festivals yeah uh there was this giant surge of festivals particularly in, in mature markets like portland and there were a lot of um uh, little weird one-offs and they were mostly not brewer run they would be curated by pubs or or just regular people or just little entrepreneurs little yeah, entrepreneurs saw an opportunity to make some money yeah yeah and i was shocked when he said he does 300 events a year that's just a a really aggressive approach in, in the sense of um, man hours. Like that's just a lot of people hours to do it. If you know, you, it, it seems like an inexpensive way on, on the, on the one hand, but boy, oh boy, I can't imagine having to travel around. He, you know, he was, he was out here and he had other people back in Asheville yeah. doing another event at the same time. And yeah. oh man, that's a lot of time. I know you brew beer all week and then on your weekends are all about going out and doing outreach and, marketing and going yeah. to festivals so i mean i'm sure they're fun but right. it's got to get tiring it's got to be exhausting <laughs> it's and it, you know it's probably really fun for two or three years when you're getting started and then i bet it starts to feel like oh my god i can't do another event kill yeah. me now so it's interesting so here's a little brewery uh well i don't know how little but not humongous brewery from Asheville, north carolina going out to california and and, and showing their beer uh and they're not doing it to sort of boost west coast beer sales because it's almost impossible to find they do actually i i did not find some in my beer store but the other beer store in town the famous belmont station has it has some barrel beer mm-hmm. uh 
But uh, he was talking about just sort of getting your name out, getting recognition, but also learning about what's going on in other parts of the world in the U.S. Right. I think I think that's a big component of this, and we, we hear that uh, when we talk to brewers, is you get to see what other people are making, so that's one one point, and mm-hmm. then you also get to talk to other brewers and and hear how, you know how they're thinking about beer and what what kind of beers they're making and and selling and what's popular and right. So all it's the not trends. just marketing and outreach, but it's also you know I don't know uh, uh, market research and yeah <laughs> and brewing research. Uh, so that was uh, I found that really interesting as well. And then both uh, half acre and burial seem to be sort of. Uh, typical of these new style breweries that are trying to brew across lots of different styles or, or not trying, but are brewing across lots of different styles, brewing, brewing right. a whole bunch of different beers. Yeah, which we have an example of somebody who's not doing that in our next segment. Um, so yep. not everybody's doing it, but yeah, it does seem to be the way to hit each segment of the market so that your beer is in front of people who have different palates. Yeah. Makes a lot of sense. Okay, well, why don't we turn now to the next uh, segment then. Cool. Um, the next pair of uh, brewers that you interviewed are uh, first uh, Jack uh, Hemmler, who is the uh, owner of uh, Jack's Abbey, uh, owner brewer mm-hmm. of Jack's Abbey uh, Brewing in uh, Framingham, Massachusetts, just outside of Chicago. Uh, uh, sorry, Boston. <laughs> Chicago, Massachusetts. Yeah. Way, way outside of Chicago. <laughs> uh, and then the second one we're going to do is actually someone uh, nearby, uh, Josh Freem. We've talked about Freem Brewing before, but he's from Hood River, Oregon. That's right. And we had only we've had Josh on the, the air, so it was kind of nice to uh, see a familiar face. And I thought, oh, why not? Let's talk to a West Coast guy, see what yeah. he thinks. Uh, so we're going we're gonna to sort of push farther out all the way to Massachusetts and then come back to Oregon in these next two. Excellent. My name is Jack Hendler, and I'm from Jack's Abbey Brewing, which uh, does Jack's Abbey Craft Lagers and Springdale beer. And you're located in? Framingham, Massachusetts, right right outside of Boston. All right. Is this your first time at the Fest, or have you been here before? So this is our second year coming. Uh, It's the first time I've been out, but it's the only event we do out in California. Uh, We don't sell beer out in this market, but uh, we wanted to be part of this festival. Yeah, well, and so that's an interesting thing. A lot of the breweries here don't sell beer in, in California. They might be from other parts of the country or world. So what's the value in uh, serving beer to people who can't buy your beer? Well, it's always good to help get your, your name out, but more for, for us, we like seeing what's going on on the, on the other side of the country. A lot of breweries here that we don't have access to, so it's a good learning experience for us to see what, what beers are selling well here and what people are up to on the innovation front on the West Coast. It, do you notice differences in the California scene and the uh, Massachusetts scene in terms of what people are making and drinking? Yeah, there, there's definitely some differences. Uh, we're, we're so heavy into the New England IPA scene in the Boston area, um, so it sort of dominates our, our a lot of the innovation that we're doing at the brewery. Um, certainly that, that sort of beer is out here, but we've seen a little bit more uh, diversity in, uh, in new beers since we've, we've been out here. Um, you have, so you're in the, the, the center of the earthquake of uh, hazy IPAs, but that's not really your jam. So what's it like, uh, turning away from this festival for a minute, to, to be selling, what's it like selling lagers in New England? Well, certainly unique for us. We're doing, our best-selling beer is a Hellas. Uh, our second best-selling beer is a Pilsner. Um, so we do a little bit of IPA, but we don't have a year-round IPA that, that we sell right now. And that, that's always been our focus, trying to make really approachable, well-executed lager beers. So we do some really 
interesting techniques. We do some really traditional brewing styles like decoction brewing. Everything is, that we release is naturally carbonated, um, so we're not injecting CO2 into our beers. Uh, they're all cold fermented at 48 degrees, and uh, they sit in the tank for long periods of time. So it's sort of uh, the opposite of what a lot of people are trying to execute right now in, in our market. So loggers are finally enjoying a little bit of uh, popularity in the United States. What's it like in New England? Uh, is, are, you, are you alone in the world making loggers, or is it starting to spread? Is there more interest in loggers? Yeah, there, there's more interest, and I, I certainly think, um, well, one of the things I noticed out here is a lot of pilsners, uh, a lot of breweries uh, trying to do, do uh, pilsner silos, um, which is... Which is great. I, you know, I'm a proponent of anything we can do to help uh, grow the lager scene, and uh, you know, there's certainly a lot of breweries that are putting some lagers out right now. But I, I don't think you're going to see a lot of people trying to do a flagship lager just from a space and time and money perspective. Where uh, our best-selling beer takes five weeks to, to lager, and it's unfortunately one of the lowest price beers that we sell so it, it just doesn't really make sense from uh, an economic standpoint sometimes to try to do what we're doing when you could uh, charge double for beer that comes out in half the time if you're going to focus on on IPAs. Well that's that's fascinating then um, uh, you know right now in the there's so much competition and their uh, margins are are such an important thing how 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 do you guys make that work out then? Well, it's a challenge. It's a passion of my brothers and I, so we don't have to answer to shareholders or to anyone else, so we brew what we want, and what we want is a very traditional Hellas to, to drink as our, as our flagship. Um, you know, the, so on the, then on the Springdale side, we go even further. We're aging beer for up to two, three years sometimes. We have two um, barrel-aged sours that, that we're sharing today. Uh, Friends in Merlot Places, which is aged with Mer Merlot juice. Um, and Lavinade, which is aged with lavender and lemons. Uh, how do you decide what to bring to a festival like this? That's a really good question. Um, yeah, so most people have never probably even heard of us, let alone had our beer. Um, so we try to bring a little bit of everything to showcase some of our really traditional lagers. We have, uh, and then some of our experimental lagers. So again, I sort of talked a little bit about Pilsner, a lot of people doing Pilsner, but there's not a lot of innovation that, that I see right now on the lager front. And so we do a whole bunch of barrel-aged Baltic porters, and we brought one of those today. And uh, really trying to push the balance of what people think about lager beer and some of the styles and flavors that you can create brewing with lager yeast. Very cool. Well, thank you for your time, and good luck at the fest. Ah, thanks for, thanks for chatting. This is great. Josh Freem, Freem Family Brewers. This is your first time to the, the festival. Um, why did you decide to come? How did you, uh, how did you come to be here, and and why? What, why? Why choose this festival? Sure, you know we we love Firestone Walker. We think they're one of the not only making some of the greatest beers in the in our industry, but also some of the greatest people. And uh, you know it's pretty unique that they can put together this type of a list and get together this group of people. And it's. It's definitely the, 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 the creme de la creme of uh, what's happening in not just the United States beer scene, but also there's some global brewers here doing some really cool stuff. And you know, people are really, really passionate. They're good friends, good networking. You know, like we're all like magnets to each other. Of, like if we find somebody is making great beer, they're probably our next new great friend.
so that's really what we're doing down here and just connect and have fun and you know, it's it's a really cool event where i uh, i think matt was telling me it sells out in like 30 seconds uh and so it, it the consumer the travel here and i uh, and they definitely make an event that is worthy of people making an effort in time and we're super proud to be part of that and so one of the benefits for, uh, for breweries attending Fest, especially where their beer is not available locally, is that they get feedback from customers. Is that an important part of what you're doing here? Yeah, you know, we, we always look forward to feedback. You know, we're, we're, here, we're to make, here to make beer for people. And so one thing that's fun, being down here in California, you know, there's uh, more people down here than the Northwest. It's a little bit different consumer, and uh, it's fun to get their feedback, uh, see what they're stoked on, what they're excited about. And then, you know, we're doing some different things uh, up in Oregon that are happening down here. So it's fun to give them an opportunity to see that in comparison uh, to what they're normally drinking. Yeah, that's another b question I had is how much of this is valuable because you're seeing what other people are doing and talking to other brewers and kind of seeing what's happening in the rest of the world. Absolutely. I mean, we we love education and networking, you know. I mean, I think all of us wake up to make beer and make better beer than we did the next day. And so we're all pretty busy as business owners and growing people in the industry. You know, if you're if, you know, if you're focused on making great beer, you're probably busy. And so these are moments like these, like give us an opportunity for all of us to like put our phones down for a minute, get away from our laptops and uh, really connect and talk about beer and also beer business too. It's really important because you can't, can't make great beer without great business. And so uh, that's like another really important component of what's happening in the industry and how that's affecting beer and trends and styles and ultimately to the consumer. So festivals, a decade ago were a really big thing that breweries uh, always wanted to be a part of and then they really proliferated and and now I know uh, there's a little bit of a kind of uh, we're, we're, in, we're in this kind of middle ground where we're not really sure what what the function of festivals are how many do you go to and how do you choose which festivals to go to as a company I mean we're doing let's say I haven't looked at a recent number but uh, off the top of my head I'd guess with sales team and all company, rest of people are involved. We at least are part of, I would say, 300 events or festivals a year. Uh, so obviously, if I went to all those, I would not be making beer. <laughs> and so that said, you know, we're really trying to prioritize like where we we have a team and like we function as a team, and it's really a fine balance of like getting out and being out and stuff like this, and then being back at the brewery. You know, you, it's easy to topple one way too much. Uh, one or the other and so we try to strike a balance and so I really rely on my team to be like what, what's gonna be the best event for like that like, I need to be at personally compared to like Gavin or Brian or like the sales team just got them you know because some people like especially in far out markets like in the you know, more like Eastern Oregon or uh, Eastern Washington that's a, that's a different market than like in Portland or Seattle uh, it, it's moving at a different pace they're they're excited about beer and they're stoked to come out to the festival but it's there's gonna be a different level of engagement depending on like who, who's the actual market like something like this is this is very beer centric like the actual like process and like nuance rather than just like more like a like classic german beer garden let's go out to a fest drink beer all day and try some different flavors and have some fun so the last interesting question from my perspective is how do breweries decide what to bring what what you have you make something like you said you put 50 beers in bottles and then you have a bunch more at the tap room so how do you decide what to bring yeah you know we we look at like 
what's fun and, and fresh that we have going on. And then we look at who is the consumer of the festival. I mean, this, so this one, uh, you know, this is like people know their beer and people are going to want like big, new, crazy, hazy, hoppy, big barrel age, like, you know, a lot of like bigger showier beers. Uh, so we got a little bit of mix of that, but also we're, we're pretty nuancy. So we, we bring what we think we shine on and what we're known for. So we brought Pilsner and then we brought a, uh, a gravity fed keg, um, a super fresh Kolsch, uh, you know, because it's hot and those taste delicious in between uh, all the all the more nerdier style beers. But then, you know, we brought some of our fruit stuff that we're really proud of with like our, our Nectarine Golden Ale, which won uh, gold at World Beer Cup last year. A lot of people haven't had that. They're probably gonna be excited to try that. So we want to get that to them. And then we brought something that would be really hard for them to get, like uh, like our um, our collaboration that we did uh, this winter with uh, Browers up in Seattle. We did their 14th anniversary beer, and it's a uh, it's a huckleberry uh, uh, fruited on top of a lamb expired base that they're wild uh, Washington huckleberries, you know, and, and, which are hard to get. It's <laughs> really hard to get in general, but hard to get enough quality to make some beer with them. And it's super expensive. So, like, just be able to show up with some fun things that would be probably really hard for these people to get and just get people excited. So, it's like a mix of like, what's going to shine well at the fest? What do we have currently going on? What are we excited to share with people? And, uh, what, and what do we want to talk to people about folks about? Fantastic. All right. Thanks, Josh. Excellent. Thanks, Jeff. Okay, so uh, Jack from Jack's Abbey, Framingham, Massachusetts. Uh, man after my own heart because he decided to focus on lager. And this is a counterpoint to what we were talking about before, that more and more breweries are doing uh, lots of different styles. He's decided to have a brewery that focuses on lagers. Yeah, and it's, it, it's, it's, he didn't really hit this, but a couple of years ago when I was in Boston, my brother-in-law um, turned me on to Jack's Abbey, which was a which was a growing and successful brewery even then and has gotten even even more successful and it continues to grow now. So they've ex- they've found a way to brand themselves as a lager brewery and distinguish themselves. So they're not reaching the broadest audience, but they're finding uh, this 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 crevice yeah. in, in a in a crowded market where everybody's going one way, they're going the other way and they're yeah, finding that's an right. Because he talks about how how the Northeast market is still a little bit dominated by hazy IPAs as as opposed to some other markets that may have uh, become just sort of more diverse, um, uh, like California, he mentions. And so sort of becoming that counterweight uh, m- might be smart business strategy, but it also a little bit risky. It is. I mean, they're both, they both have their risks, right? Yeah. On the one hand, if you're, if you're doing everything, it's hard to have an identity that people recognize. It's like, oh, of course yeah. you have a brewed IPA and a lager, just right. like everybody else. But luckily, the I would say sort of the lager f- uh, phenomena has is spreading is is a big trend and is spreading and he's probably caught that wave as it as it reaches the east coast (laughs) yeah he is and uh, we have some of his beer here we have some of his beer and i think this is the hellas this his number one selling beer it's just called house lager it's described as a golden lager that was a little bit close to the mic you probably should leave this to the professional next time man my last one was so good let's see sorry that it was a little overcarbonated, which was part of the problem. I'm not going to step on the audio as I step on the audio. There. So, uh, you know, here, here it is. They're, they're doing loggers. Loggers took a while for loggers to become popular. Uh, I also think it took a while for them to become popular among brewers because these are not inexpensive things to do. Because unlike an ale, which you can throw in a tank and serve, you know, 
in a week or two. This is something that has to sit conditioning and lagering for a while. Yeah, it's an interesting it's an interesting thing because uh, in terms of ingredients, they're a lot cheaper than a hazy IPA, right? right? And depending on what's happening in the marketplace, depending on what's happening in your brewery, you may have a lot of tank space just sitting there, which is a great time to lager a beer because um, they're cheaper and yep. you've already got tank space. Yeah. So, so if, it if, kind of depends. If you're not super urban and you have a lot of space and can uh, make that initial investment in tanks, then yeah, lagering could be a, could be a way to go because yeah, ingredient wise, they're as cheap as you get. That's interesting. That is, um, uh, it, it says at the top, mm. Hellas, Hellas Landbier, but oh, uh, it does say Hellas on the back. You're right. I finally found it. Yeah, it says Golden Lager on the front and Hellas Landbier yep. on the back. Um, but it ta- has a really American taste to me. Uh, does it? It feels it, it feels like it's uh, it's definitely it, heavier than I would have uh, expected if I was served this in Germany. If, it feels to me like if we could go back to like 1950 and find a nice regional lager brewery in Wisconsin, that's what the beer would taste like. Oh, interesting. Yeah. It um, it's hoppier and a bit heavier. I'm looking here. It's absolutely a, golden, yeah. uh, perfectly clear. Yeah, it's a 5.2 percent Hellas, so it's it's pretty hefty. Yeah, I mean that's pretty good for a, a Hellas. That's uh, I think typical for. I mean, you were there more recently than me, but you probably weren't looking at that stuff. You were just I saying, was just drinking. Give me that liter, man. <laughs> <laughs> Give me that moss. <laughs> Uh, yeah, um, I, really nice, really crisp. Yeah, it's but really a little nice. sweetness, mm-hmm, definitely. Um, that the Hellas part of it is, you know, reflected in that sweetness. It's mm-hmm. nice. Mm. Yeah. Anyway, so uh, yeah, we were talking about ingredient-wise, these lagers aren't aren't expensive, especially if you're not using these exotic tons and tons and tons of exotic hops like right. you are in the Northeast. But Time uh, can be expensive. Time, you know. But time in a tank can be very expensive. Yeah. Yeah. Especially if you have uh, limited space. Um, uh, and once you, it's one of those also things that's really expensive when you get going, but once, if that's your thing, then you're always rotating through the tanks. And so it's just the amount of space you have to devote to right. an extra five weeks of lagering, whatever it was that he said. Yeah. And then you talk to Josh Freem. Yes, Josh. Uh, uh, local to Oregon, out in Hood River, uh, has established a stellar reputation for making outstanding beers. What I was interested in about your discussion was how he decided what to bring, and he talked about thinking about the type of beer fest it is and how sophisticated the audience is going to be. Right. And if it's more sophisticated, knowledgeable beer drinkers, he'll bring a more challenging, more interesting, more interesting beer, more sophisticated beer. That was interesting to me. It was interesting in light of the beer that he brought, which became his big buzz beer, which was uh, a, a a cask of uh, Hellas on a, from a gravity-fed cask. Speaking of Hellas, uh, yeah. Uh, I'm sorry, not Hellas, Kolsch. Kolsch, yeah. Uh, which you'll see in Cologne. Uh, this is how you'll see this uh, presentation a lot, and and much like the the German presentation, it's not actually barrel aged, so it's not there's no wood character, and in fact, right, uh, they have lined. Um, lined casks. So I don't know why it tastes so good, but man, it really tasted good. And I, I was not going to drink it because I mean I was yeah, I was there to drink all these other exotic beers. And people kept saying, "Have you had that frame?" So so is gravity fed? Does that mean that it's um, uh, primed in the cask? So is it carbonated? It is carbonated. Yeah, and they just open the top and let it pour out. Right. And uh, yeah, it was it was uh, perfectly carbonated. So they do some fermentation in the in the cask. 
I don't know if they force carbonate it or they ferment it in the cask. I'm not sure. Actually, I'm sure. Okay. Um, but when it gets in there, it's but cool. once once it's there, then it's just gravity fed. Okay. Yeah, and you got to drink the whole thing. And um, <laughs> oh shucks, it was nice because <laughs> after the fest, uh, they they served us dinner, media, and the brewers, and they some of the some of the brewers had just brought over their beer, and you know, uh, Josh had to he was going to have to dump that beer to take it back. Uh, you know, he was that that was it was done. So. That cask was just sitting out there, and we were drinking it um, with our barbecue, which was very nice. Ah, excellent. Uh, and it was good. It was very good. Yeah, <laughs> I like. I like. Uh, he had. He I had like his Kolsch. Yeah, and he had his his, his uh, barrel aged exotic stuff too. But it was interesting that I think in a I think in a certain sense he probably thought this crowd is so sophisticated they'll actually appreciate this Kolsch, which yeah, is and an interesting. Kind and of I way imagine to go. that you know we're talking about Paso Robles. It's probably hot, right? It. It has been in the hundreds the last two years, apparently, yeah. and we had a perfect day, like 78. Ooh, nice. Yeah, it was very nice. Yeah. Yeah, Beer Fest when it's too hot, just even, yeah, it's hard. Yeah, and, and the Oregonians, and there were a number of Oregonians there, we were complaining because it was 78, yeah. you know, <laughs> getting dangerously close to too hot. Uh, yeah. Well, but we also understood that it was nowhere near as bad as it could have been. Yeah, I was worried about that if I was going to work down there. Yeah. You, if you live closer to the ocean, it cools off, but when you're a little bit inland. Yeah, and they're inland. All right, so let's turn to the last pair. And the last pair now, we have to cross the pond. Yes. And uh, we head off to Europe and um, what uh, is still Europe, but soon not to be uh, Britain. Mm. <laughs> yes. Uh, so there are, our two interviews in, in order are first going to be uh, Agostino Arioli mm-hmm. from Birificio Italiano. Very nicely done. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> uh, and Rob Lovett from Thornbridge, which uh, we know uh, quite well because we visited uh, their brewery in Bakewell, Derbyshire. Yep. As he said, Derbyshire. Derbyshire. Yes. <laughs> Perhaps the most beautiful uh, setting for uh, for a brewery that we visited or I visited. Yeah, they owned a pub nearby uh, called the Pack Horse, which we went to, and I, I still have visions of the Pack Horse dance in my head from time to time. It was a wonderful old. It was in this fantastic old uh, uh, stone building, and um, it was great. You had a Kipling and on cask, and it was it was good times. Yeah, and the thing about Thornbridge is uh, it was started by some rich dude, as I recall, mm-hmm. uh, and the point. Of that is that the, the, there's a Thornbridge Hall. There actually is an old estate, and this is really beautiful, hilly, woodsy countryside in England. And the estate had uh, I can't remember was it a former stable or something. And it was a it was a, a building out back which yep. housed the original brewery, a very small little, and now it's their little sort of pilot and and uh, small batch brewery. Uh, and and they have a completely modern, fancy production brewery uh, nearby. Uh, which is on a little industrial state, but still it's incredibly gorgeous because it's right by a little creek and right. <laughs> it's lovely. Uh, but um, and, and they told us it was one of the very first industrial sites in England during the Industrial Revolution. So it's kind of a historic industrial site. Oh, good memory. Yeah, I was, I remember that. But, uh, but yeah, Thornbridge Hall is incredible. It's really beautiful. Uh, the brewery site behind it is um, is neat. Uh, and um, yeah, I should stop going on about Thornbridge. That's right. But, <laughs> but we do have we have a beer from uh, from that that brewery, the little brewery. Right. Hall, so. Yeah, which is where I was going eventually, which is that the, the one beer I could find now for some reason, for a while you could find Thornbridge beer a lot locally. I don't know why not anymore, but Jaipur IPA used to be one of my go-to I know. drinks. And I think actually you mentioned that. in the. I did. Yeah, I, I, I saw Thornbridge was there and I was all excited. Anyway, I'm stepping on the, the interview, so let's go to the interview yes. and we'll talk about it afterward. All right. 
All right, so uh, say your name and your brewery. Agostino, uh, founder and brewer of Birificio Italiano, based in uh, Como province, uh, very close to Milano. This is, not, is, this is not your first time at the festival, is that right? How many times have you come? I don't even remember. <laughs> Probably six times. Okay. Why, why do you come to this festival? What, what's special about this festival? Well, I came here because I was invited. And this is an honor and pleasure, uh, you know. And so I, I, that's why I'm here, because it's a, it's an honor to be here. And uh, I like it. I like it a lot. What's special in this festival, it's a great selection of breweries. And the, the setting is perfect. And uh, everything's working well. And, uh, and I have the chance to see any time to see uh, friends that I haven't seen since a long time, like you. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. I was very excited it's to see true. that you were going to be true. here. Yeah. Uh, how do you decide which beers to bring? Oh, that's 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 a tough decision because we have a. You probably know we have a, at least 20 different beers and two brands. The first, the main brand is Birificio Italiano. The Tipo Pils is a flagship beer but then we have a uh, we have a, a brand that's called Clambaric we have a, a, a barrel facility in another place and together with these two gentlemen that are winemakers we produce this kind of uh, grape based or sour fruit beers naturally souring no kettle sour that's forbidden in our place so do you ferment that like wine would ferment, like naturally fermented from the fruit, or how do you do that? Yeah, when we brew the like the one we have on top on top uh, right now is it's called Incrocio Manzoni. That we we use the I'm in English I am, but it stands for Incrocio Manzoni. It's an Italian grape variety, and so what we do we 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 we, we have 80 percent of beer wort with no. Uh, no yeast cells, nothing is pure, and then we add 20% in weight of these um, uh, grapes with the skins, not only the the most, not all, but the skins included, and and then it start fermenting in open wooden barrels uh, spontaneously mm -hmm. with the with the yeast uh, from the from the grape skin. So you get the terroir of the grape. We get a terroir. If you, if you try this beer, it's amazing because it's a sour stuff, but you can get the, the, the grapes Ex exactly, perfectly. So that's what we're looking for. And at festivals, do you, you, you're here and you're interacting with uh, the drinkers. Do you listen to what they're saying? Is this valuable to you to get feedback from the people who are drinking the beer? It is. I mean... We are in the U.S., so it's more fun than um, useful for my business. Uh, but it's really nice because I love people giving back some uh, feedback. You know, I don't like drinkers that only they just they drink. That's it. No, I want to. Uh, how would you say in English? Uh, have, a, have an interaction, interaction with, with with the people. Yeah, that's what I like. That's what and is this uh, this is very selected uh, the public the people here are really selected because not everybody pays uh, such a uh, amount of money to get into a, a festival they really know that they can get the best here and so they are 
have a lot of uh, you know ideas about what beer is. And they're educated and they're smart about beer. They are definitely more than the average uh, consumer that I love too because it's perfect. But here is different. Very cool. Well, all right. Thank you very much, Agostino Arioli from uh, Birrificio Italiano. Did I say all that right? Yeah, it's perfect. <laughs> Cheers. Thanks. Thank you. Uh, my, my name is Rob Lover. I'm the head brewer at Thornbridge Brewery in Bakewell, Derbyshire, in England. Very nice. We uh, uh, people who listen to the, have listened to the podcast a long time will know that Patrick and I visited in 2011 and uh, had a great time there. We we were a little bit disappointed to see you didn't have you weren't bringing Jiper, one of our favorites. Okay, well, sorry about that, but uh, you know, <laughs> can't keep everyone happy. But uh, maybe next time we'll, we'll bring that one along. It's just nice to sort of put out a few of our other beers as well for people to try. Yeah, we'll talk in a minute about how you select your beers. Um, I'm interested for international breweries. Uh, why? Uh, what? What's the allure of coming to a, a beer festival halfway across the continent or the the, the world? Well, I think. Um, Obviously, the craft scene is really mature in in the U.S., so it's always good to see the trends that are happening here because that's what generally will happen in in Britain, you know, a couple of years later. Uh, and you know, you guys just do craft beer so well. There's some great breweries out here, and Firestone are so so well respected. You know, you know, you can't really say no if you get invited to this festival. Yeah. And this is how many times? Is this your first time? Have you been here before? Well, actually, about 10 years ago, they invited us, and we were too busy, uh, and we said no, which was ridiculous that we said no, but we'd already been out to the States that year, and, you know, sometimes you've got to make beer. It's not just beer on marketing events, and uh, they kindly invited us again last year, so we said, no, got to go this time, and then we've been invited back, so it's really cool. So there are, there are parallels between what's happening in the U.K. in terms of craft beer and what's happening in the United States, but there's also some differences. What, what do you notice that... What, what's different? Like, I, I know that there's hazy IPAs are popular in, in the UK, but what, what, where are the differences that you're seeing? Uh, I suppose the real difference is that we've always kind of had that craft thing, but it was more to do with our uh, cast beer. Mm -hmm. um, and now there's like another, which was back, you know, in the 70s um, when camera kind of revived it. And, uh, but now there's the second wave of craft, which is more of the American model. Um, each brew is different, I suppose. You know, some guys just concentrate more on IPAs, and then there's other guys like us that do the full range, you know, lagers, pale ales, and then hazy beers, barrel aged, you know, you name it. And how is craft and uh, cask, uh, traditional English brewing, coming together? Are, are, are there, is, 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 there, is a bridge forming, or is it still just kind of separate camps? I'd say it's pretty much separate camps, unfortunately, and I really wish some of the newer craft guys, rather than be so dismissive of Casper, which is part of our, you know, our, our brewing heritage, embrace it because it's just not seen as fashionable. But you know, when Casper is done well, it's one of the best drinks in the world. Yeah, and there are ways in which the craft brewing uh, techniques, you know, the the, the, the hopping techniques, yeah. and kind of the the approach could be folded into cask uh, brewing without you know, really changing much of cask brewing at all. So it's interesting that you're not seeing more 4% beers that have a more modern kind of hopping quality. Yeah, I mean, there are breweries out there, for example. I mean, we do, you know, our cask jai pour is brewed differently to our 
uh, main Jaipur, which is in bottle and keg, but only just with the finishing gravity and the type of yeast. Um, but then there's other people as well, like Oakham, for example. Oakham Brewery, they do a lot of, like, like you mentioned, that sort of where they're coming together, the craft and the cask. They do, like, you know, pale cask beer with American hop forward. So there is some guys out there doing it well. And how do you decide what to bring to a festival like this? And given that, even with your flagship, very few people will have tried that. So you, yeah. basically all your beer is going to be new to people here. Yeah. Um, I suppose we just we, we decided on, you know, our, our lager is the beer that we, all the brewers like to drink. And I think when it's warm, you find that people some, sometimes have enough of the, of the, you know, the 8% IPAs and they'll just want a refreshing Hellas. Um, but then also... Conversely, we've got the barrel-aged sour, which is uh, you know much more complex and a beer world cup medal winner. So it's good just to bring a range of what present, represents as well. Yeah. And um, what what could uh, America? So you know, right now I think the UK tra- craft scene is informed a lot by what's happening in the United States. Yeah. What can America learn from what the UK is doing or thinking about beer? Uh, I suppose uh, one thing that's you know, you guys have some great hops and seem to be really fashionable. Um, but we've, I'd say we've got the best malt in the world. I think, uh, you know, British malt, you can't beat it. And I know there's importers here now where you can get hold of English malt. And, you know, English hops are fantastic as well. We've just made a beer called Heartland, which was trying to, almost like a different, and this beer was, um, for me, it represented everything that's good about English beers, but it was more like a, like a calibre really, rather than a Casper. Mm. Um, so we used target hops and that, which are just beautiful, you know, fresh from the uh, from a grower. And uh, I think, yeah, there are some good English hops out there as well. Yeah, there are, and some new English hops, uh, yeah. which I don't know that much about, but they're, um, I guess, kind of a hybrid between the American quality and the English quality. A little bit of a little bit of tropicality, but also some of the forest floor and earthiness. Is that kind of the way those go? Yeah, some of those new ones are a bit like that, but our hops are never going to be as pungent as yours. They're going to be more, I mean, I call them noble hops, you know, the, 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 the Fuggles and the Goldens, the, uh, you know, just very, very uh, rounded and, you know, a bit more finesse to them. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it was great to talk to you. Thank you for uh, talking to us. And we, we uh, I know Patrick, when he hears this, will be really excited that we talked to Thornbridge and we maybe uh, hope to come see you again out there in Bakewell. It's, you have a great brewery. Yeah, thanks for uh, interviewing me and um, thanks for doing this podcast and you're welcome anytime you're back over. Absolutely. Thanks. Grand, thanks. Okay, so those are also very interesting. It's amazing how far people will come to visit one of these brew fests. Um, you know Augustino well. I do, uh, yeah. He features in your Secrets of the Master Brewers. Yeah, he does. Uh, when I Which is a book, by the way, that's that you should right. buy, available oh. today on Amazon, Powell's, local bookstores. Wherever you find, wherever you, you find printed yeah, material, that's right. <laughs> um, yeah, Augustino uh, is actually one of the more important brewers uh, in, in the world, really, in a, in a certain sense, because he's introduced this uh, Italian pilsner that uh, you'll see if you go to breweries um, enough. Breweries, you'll 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 stumble across these Italian pilsner, Italian pilsner. They're they're kind of out there, and those all relate back to uh, Birificio Italiano's Tipo Pils, uh-huh. uh, which is. Um, this kind of iconic uh, beer, uh, we actually um, did a thing on, on Italian beer, I don't know, long ago. So if you really want to deep dive on that, you can look at it. Um, but but relevant to this thing, um, right. 
Pivo pills was entirely inspired by uh, Tipo pills. Ah, uh, Firestone Walker. Walkers. Yeah. Pilsner. So um, Matt Brindelson's a big fan of, of Augustino's. And so it, it's a really important beer. And it's kind of introduced a new way of thinking about lagers, which has been which was in some ways inspired by the English and American tradition. Mm-hmm. And now uh, many American brewers are making it. So How would you typify that that approach? Uh, it includes um, acidification of uh-huh. water along the way to give okay. it a crisper kind of character and uh, dry hopping uh-huh. and a little slightly warmer fermentation. So the yeast character is a little bit more oh, okay. uh, expressive. Right. Um, and what happens is you just get a, it's just these little tweaks all along the way that create a vibrancy and a, and a, and a, uh, fullness of flavor that is really delightful. Yeah. Well, he talked about bringing something with grapes. So tell me about the grapes. Yeah. Well, that's another Italian thing. And when I was in Italy, uh, I, I talked to a different brewer who did the same thing. Uh, I think it's a real Italian specialty, and I'm I, I'm surprised that more breweries don't do this. And that is to inoculate their beer with the uh, wild yeast that are resident on fruit. And it you know mm-hmm. it makes a lot of sense that an Italian would use grapes. You don't right. have to use grapes, but. Yeah. Um, that that is uh, uh, a, a classic way of making wine, natural fermentation. So you you do natural fermentation right. uh, via uh, fruit. So that's and as a, he says, I think that you get a sort of a terroir. You from, totally get a terroir, right. and um, hang tight for the beer sherpa. We may talk about that beer again. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, that's a good tea. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, and then we talked to Rob from Thornbridge. I went. I started waxing nostalgic. It was my favorite stop. That's why. I, I go on. We we did a lot of touring of Britain, and Thornbridge was my favorite. You uh, just made John Keeling cry. Uh, well, that's true. It was my <laughs> it was my co favorite stuff. Actually, actually, in my in my defense uh, of the craft brewers there you that we saw in England, and we maybe should stop and just uh, say that there's sort of two parallel traditions in beer that are happening that are counter to the big industrial breweries. One is the old heritage breweries of which. Uh, you're referring Fuller's, John Keeling at Fuller's represented, and we went to a few of those, and those were fascinating. I mean, yeah. they're amazing. We got into Samuel Smith's, and we went to Fuller's, and these are old. Adnams, Green King. Yeah, just amazing, amazing old breweries and brewers. Um, well, the, <laughs> yeah, some of the brewers were old, but uh, uh, beers. Um, but then there was this new craft tradition that was a bit inspired by U.S. Uh, the U.S. craft. Well, I would say definitely inspired by the U.S. craft. Some some were sort of uh, taking those tr- those American and, and heritage British traditions together, yeah. uh, which is kind of what I thought of as Thornbridge, was kind of this hybrid that was that was both sort of hewing to British tradition traditions and also sort of pushing the envelope. So that's right. Uh, so he was there. In fact, <laughs> to uh, to highlight that point, uh, I think what he said was he brought a lager and a barrel aged sour um, to the fest. So you can see how sort of they're pushing the envelope as well. Right. Um, you mentioned that Jiper IPA was for a long time one of my big faves. I think it was yours as well. Absolutely. Uh, we really, we really enjoyed that. In fact, I was looking for it uh, this time. I didn't find it. What you've opened, however, is something pretty special. Yeah. How do you say that? Bra- Braccia. Uh, Bracia. Why are you asking me? I don't know. You, you, you do better with the faking your way through these things. <laughs> Bracia. Yeah. <laughs> or Braccia. Uh, yeah, so this is a dark ale brewed with honey. This comes from the little brewery at the estate. Estate brewed, Yes, I think we would say. <laughs> and it's described as a velvety ale generously influenced with dark and bitter chestnut honey. Uh, yeah. 
It's, it's got a, a little peated malt, I noticed when I read the back. And it's you a can 9%. Really, you can really smell that uh, peated malt. That's a really nice beer. It's that, a 9%. Uh, yeah. That nice. tastes like the olden days. That's what that tastes like. It, it smells like the olden days. Yeah. It's, oh, what an aroma. <laughs> no, really, I mean, it's it's phenomenal. It's dark and chocolatey. It's and It's dark got a little, chocolate, a little coffee. Some dark fruits, uh, but then it's got a little smoke in there. Um, I think this bottle may be slightly old. There's a, a touch yeah. of oxidation, but yeah. it actually yeah. works pretty well in this beer. I mean, it, it kind of... It, it it actually kind of works. I think uh, you. It feels to me like this beer should have a little oxidation. <laughs> like this. That's, that's the very traditional British exactly characteristic. A little a little stock ale character there. Mm. Yeah, that is a rich, robust. That is a really nice a flavor explosion. It is. Yeah, the, the smokiness is really nice with that sort of dark fruit kind of chocolate. The alcohol is completely hidden though, and I'm, yes, it is. Which I is could, good because I did, I'm very. I don't know how much so, we've talked about it, but I'm sort of good sort of bad if you threw this back as fast as I might be tempted to do based on its palate. <laughs> well, for those of us who have more self-control mm. and who are a bit sensitive to alcohol flavor, I like it when the alcohol is, is in the background. I do too. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a nice beer. Uh, mm. Yeah. He also talked about, and this, this is nice, he talked about the supremacy of British malt. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Way to and go. He, and he, he kind of soft pedaled it, but he was trying to draw a con to Americans' mm-hmm. relationship to malt, and yep. he he need not soft pedal it because we have we're growing a tradition. We are growing a tradition, and slowly, it's, and it's great. Uh, micro malters are really helping American brewers get back in touch with the power of base malts. But for the for the most part of the uh, craft beer era, we have just used two row malt as sugar, basically a fermentable, and yeah. then gotten any flavor from uh, specialty malts and. It means that we've completely ignored this important dimension, yeah. which uh, the, the the British totally get into. Yeah, so. absolutely. Yeah. In fact, when we were visiting those heritage breweries, you could often just look out from the Tower Brewery onto the, the barley fields and the maltings in the distance. And they were really particular. I'm thinking of Green King in particular right now. Right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think Adams did too. Yeah. Um, yeah, you would ask them and they would say, oh, we use optic. You don't use Marisol. Oh no, no, no. We use optic. <laughs> we use uh, we use pearl. We use whatever it is. You know, right. they they use a particular uh, barley variety, and it's malted at a particular malt house, and, and it tends to be right there, like stone's throw from the brewery. So you can see how these breweries developed where they did at the time when transportation was so expensive. And they're really, it's not a throwaway. It gives a, the beer a particular flavor, and that's the flavor they want. Right. They want the flavor of optic, and not Golden Promise, not Marisol, or not these other things. So yeah. yeah, whatever it is. So I want to back up and take a little bird's eye view now that we've talked. Yeah, let's gone do through that. all these uh, interviews. This is kind of the the point of this new style brewfest, which is it's it's smaller, it's more focused, and it's more um, uh, intimate in the sense that you can actually talk to people directly involved with the production of the beer. Yeah, and decisions about the beer, and and in a way, that's a bit of a throwback because I remember the very early days of craft beer. Um, the Breweries were tiny little operations, and it was the owner Demand was, always, was small. Yeah, and owners had to be out selling because right. they were the only guys at the teaching brewery. people what craft beer is, and it's not a, <laughs> it's not a bad thing. Don't be scared. Yeah, <laughs> so we're kind of coming back around in a way to that intimacy and that uh, direct connection between the drinker and the maker, and that's a very uh, attractive arrangement to me. I, I I I wish more craft beer fans would visit breweries and talk to brewers. I think there's something incredibly valuable about going to a place, um, seeing where the beer is made, and then talking to the brewers and about 
you know, you don't have to ask them if they use step mashing or get mm-hmm. into technical stuff, but just ask them how they think about beer, what they like, yeah. and uh, listen to what they say. And, and, and it, it really changes your view of the kind of beer they make and, and your relationship to it. So I, I, I think it's great, and I hope people were taking advantage of that and, and speaking to the brewers there. Yeah, and I think that's a big part of the point of craft beer and how you enjoy craft beer is you understand more about it you think about the decisions the brewers made you you appreciate them or dislike whatever it is it's a much more uh i'm gonna sound really uh obnoxious but it's more more, much more of an intellectual exercise when you know more about it and it becomes much more interesting and it's it is more intellectual it's also more um personal we just listened to six different brewers talk about their beer, and you can get a. It's, it was like a portfolio of the way uh, that that plays out. You know, you talk to six different brewers about how they think about beer and make beer and why they do things. Mm-hmm. You get six totally different answers, and I hope people got a really strong impression of the personalities of of these these men. I'm sorry, they were all men. There were not so many women there, um, and their breweries. And you know, you, just just listening to these six again, I, I was reminded of that. Yeah, yeah. So I think. Uh... I really like this trend in terms of uh, beer festivals. I'm, you know, I'm almost completely over the big ones like the Oregon Brewers Festival. It had a time and a place, and I enjoyed it to death when I was there. But uh, and as a program note, we're going to be out of town, so we're not going to be doing that this year. So um, yeah, just so you know, <laughs> longtime right. fans, there will be no there will be no OBF for us this year. Yeah, uh, uh, but I think it's great. I think this proliferation of these kinds of festivals is great i think that it offers a different experience for for consumers and and uh really allows you to learn a lot more and become much more uh, intimately familiar with uh these breweries and their beer yeah and i think uh one thing we heard time and again from these guys is that there are good good festivals that do interesting stuff and are engaging and fun to be at and then there are more generic ones that are, are maybe not as fun so uh, as consumers now we're having all this festival choice, so uh, you know, buyer beware. Go yeah, to. well, and and just like anything, you know, there's a festival for each type of person. There's certainly the people who really appreciate the fact that you can try 100 different beers at the Oregon Brewers Festival, uh, and um, those that appreciate having a smaller selection but being more intimate and and be able to connect better with with the brewers themselves. Absolutely. Okay. Well, that was cool. Yeah, that was. Thank you very much for going and doing that and uh, bring, sh- bringing us back the audio. I should say, full disclosure, uh, Firestone Walker paid for me to visit the fest, and um, so now you know. Yeah, and th- not me, by the way. <laughs> not, not, not Patrick. No invitation was forthcoming to Patrick. Uh, <laughs> and Firestone Walker, if you'd like to be even more involved with the uh, Beer Vonda podcast, can t- uh, contact right. us about uh, sponsorship opportunities. Yeah, we're looking, we're looking, looking for them constantly. Okay, That's so right. let's turn to the mailbag and the Sherpa. Let's start with the Sherpa, since you already teased it. Right. I have a feeling it has something to do with Beer Fizio Italiano. Yeah, so after uh, Agostino and I spoke, I went and had his beer, which is called I Am. It looks like I'm, um, mm-hmm. but it refers to the Incrocio Manzoni uh, grape, of which 20% was used to uh, make this beer and mm-hmm. inoculate it. Okay. And it was definitely one of the big standouts at the festival. Um, so describe the beer. Is it a, yeah. is it a lager? It is no, it's a it, it's a you know it's a it's it's a kind of a wild ale. I mean okay. it's um you know it's like natural fermentation, like you would make a naturally fermented wine. Oh but, yeah, my apologies. Right, so they get the the yeast from the, the grapes as well. <clears throat> okay, but it was very vinous. It was not very funky. It was it okay. was um 
it was shocking to me to hear that it was only 20% wine grapes because it would it seemed very much like a white wine. Uh-huh. Uh, the, the, the character, both from the fermentation side and the, the, the grape side, were really uh, clear and pronounced right. vinous uh, uh, qualities. And it certainly tasted, you know, like a, a, a beer from a, a vineyard. So um, it, that, it delivered on all the, the points that you'd hope for. And uh, I think... These kinds of beers, if if people were always trying to expand our audience, so this is, would definitely be a bridge to a, a wine drinker. You know, if you had a, right. a person who liked wine and absolutely hated beer, you could really challenge them and say, "I, I dare you to dislike this beer." <laughs> this is uh, it's going to be so in your well. Warehouse. In our tradition, a very useful Sherpas, you can just run right out to your local Piggly Wiggly and uh, and pick some up. You got <laughs> try it yourself. <laughs> you got to go to Como, man, and I recommend that you do oh, that. Oh, I was gonna say, yeah, yeah, fly into Milan. Talk about a beautiful area to visit. Yeah, when you're in Milan, stop at Lombrate, um, head up to Como, uh, and uh, check out the lake. Yeah, it's actually near 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 Como. I can't remember the name of the weird little town it's, it's in, in but, the Como province. Yeah, so uh, it, I, I can't recommend a place more highly for the beer tourist than uh, northern Italy, so definitely that's also a recommendation, a Sherpa, if you will. And there's good food to boot. Oh, man. And <laughs> coffee everywhere. I was so... All my, my travels through Europe where the coffee's so terrible, and then you get to Italy, and it's like, oh. <laughs> I two have shots reached, of a, I have reached coffee nirvana. Two shots of espresso. They're basically giving it away. It's 50 times better than anything on the island of Great Britain. Amazing. So go get ye to uh, yeah. Milan and, and points north. Yeah, you want tea, go to Britain. You want coffee, don't go. Okay. Uh, <laughs> mailbag. Mailbag, this is addressed to me, so you better read it. All right. Uh, this comes from, from Van in uh, Portland, Oregon, uh, a brewer of some renown. Um, he says, ask Patrick how he feels about economic cascades and the growth of craft. Uh, it's an old concept from the 80s and 90s, if I recall correctly. Van is Van Havoc, who has uh, nearly a PhD in economics, but he bailed out to become a brewer. Um, so he's recalling back to when he was a scholar. Uh, when he was a scholar? I I assume he's still a scholar and gentleman. Well, a scholar, gentleman, brewer. He definitely is, <laughs> but this goes to when he was actively, uh, gotcha. you know, doing that. I think because he he writes, I read only I read one paper on it uh, over 25 years ago. The idea is that there are market conditions that result in slow growth that builds to fast growth and suddenly crashes. The analogy is the stream that becomes a river that turns into a waterfall. It's a proposal for how market bubbles and bursting might work. Huh. Interesting. So I don't know uh, this literature in particular or this paper uh, in particular. Um, what it reminds me of, and I don't know if this is the same thing, but reminds me of information cascades. Um, there is a literature on these information cascades, and and it occurs to me that you know you could think of craft beer as a lot like this, um, especially these in the new era of social media. It's now become kind of a normal thing, but back in the day, it wasn't as normal a thing. But the idea is something like, you know, a movie comes out and you see it and you really like it, and you tell your friends and you tell your friends, and you can see how that sort of becomes an exponential growth possibility of demand, right? All of a sudden, there's this this demand that sort of uh, this wave of demand that comes, uh, but then it it burns out at some point. So sort of exponential. I don't know. You can almost think of like a pyramid scheme when it comes to right. when it comes to the end. Right. <laughs> yes. Suddenly there's just too much, and then it just sort of all of a sudden dies. So uh, that's kind of one 
way in which we used to describe things like Hollywood movies and the mm-hmm. demand for Hollywood movies and other things that relied a lot on word of mouth. It's different now because of the era, the era of um, uh, social media information technology means that these things happen all the time, much more prevalent now and probably uh, much quicker and um, maybe so much so that it's not as a big deal. But the idea was essentially that. And you can think about how you describe this as craft beer, which is, oh, you know, I tried this great beer or there's this great brewery you got to try. And the word of mouth spreads and spreads and spreads. And so you see this growth and growth and growth. And if you're a craft brewer, you're excited because all of a sudden, but... 127% growth. That's great. Yeah, but those information cascades have that sort of feature that at some point they sort of burn out. Once you've reached that that critical mass, uh, then the you know, then there's no one else to tell, right? Or 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 that, and then suddenly you can right. see the sort of demand pull off, and then you know, in, to tell sort of the modern the modern version was be there. There's someone else out there, some other newest 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 latest brewery that people go. So yeah, I can I can um, I can relate that literature to craft beer definitely. Well, thank God for the Trump tariffs on Mexican beer because that'll really create an opportunity for, for more growth in craft brewing. Oh boy! Yeah, um, America first, baby. <laughs> you said that, not me. So yeah, okay, never mind. I'm not gonna get into it. Uh, all right, so I guess that's it. That's it. Uh, that's that wraps up the podcast. Uh, a few words going out. Uh, subscribe to us on iTunes or SoundCloud or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to rate us. Five listen, stars, please. Listen to us on air at X-Ray FM. Uh, yeah. Uh, listen to us, subscribe to us, uh, review us. We'd love to hear from you. So also you can send us your questions and comments. Jeff at beervonablog.com is a great way to send your comments. You can visit us on social media. Jeff blogs at the Beervana blog. He also has a Beervana blog Facebook page you can post to. And he tweets at Beervana. And Patrick tweets at Beeronomics. I do. Excellent. I really actually do sometimes. Not about <laughs> once a week. Yeah. <laughs> well, you have to follow him closely to make sure you catch that tweet then. Yeah, you got to make sure that yeah you get the notifications when I tweet because when I do, it's good. That's Pure- why. So one thing you'd also do is follow me and periodically I'll comment on economics and it's almost certain that Patrick will correct me. So that's <laughs> another, another thing. <laughs> uh yeah, so I guess that's that's about it. So I'm going to uh, uh oh, we've we've drained the house lager. Which, by the way, the more I drank it, the more I wanted it. Um, I have the brassica. It has that nice biscuity malty taste. Uh, but I'm going to pick up the the uh, Daisy Cutter Pale Ale from Half Acre Beer Company. And you can't even get a hold of this thing because I'm liking it so much. I'm just sitting here. It's like my hand hasn't left it since. Uh, I don't know, 10 minutes ago. Yeah, knock yourself out. You've got almost two pints of a 9% beer, so you can't taste the alcohol. It's probably not there. Just go for it. Probably not there. Just go for it. You'll never find out because I'm not giving you any more. (laughs) All right. Cheers, Jeff. Cheers, Patrick.